service. Hey, are you guys proud dog owners like I am? You ever wonder why so many dogs are suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, you know Katherine Heigl from Knocked Up, she's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation. And she says that she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. After doing a ton of research, Catherine feels that there's one place that we can all look to improve our dog's health, and that is their food. Many dog foods can actually create toxins that can be wrecking our dog's health. Okay, and this is true even for many of the premium dog food brands. However, by just adding a few special superfoods to our dog's diets, we can see huge transformations in their health. Catherine Heigl has already done this. She's made a video about it. You guys need to watch this video. It's a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. This worked amazingly for my dog, Dusty. I'm noticing more energy, healthier skin, uh, healthier coat. Dusty's coat looks fantastic. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash disgraceland and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash Disgraceland. Disgraceland is brought to you by Disgraceland All Access. Disgraceland All Access membership is your chance to support the show and get ad-free listening, an exclusive scripted episode every month, and exclusive bonus content every week, plus access to an always-on chat with me and your fellow discos. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership or just click on the link in the show notes for this episode. Disgraceland is a production of Double Elvis. Hey, what's up, America and parts far and wide across the pond below and above the border all over this great big world of ours? It's 4th of July, Independence Day, where here in America we celebrate our independence from the Brits, going way back to 1776, and here in the Disgraceland feed, rather than making the team here at Double Elvis hustle together some episodes on a week when everyone is celebrating over their grills and on the beach and in their backyards, we figured we would celebrate some of that independent American spirit from the world of Disgraceland. And this is our version of like the, uh, you remember Seinfeld and Friends, they do those clip shows around the holidays. That's what we're doing here. All right, rather than take the week off, I'm going to play for you guys some of our most, well, American clips from our Disgraceland episodes. Clips that best demonstrate the America that I know and love. First up, from our episode on Ray Charles, I wrote this on a dark day in American history, January 6, 2020. And rather than let my emotions spin me out with anger, I chose to dig into some of that American spirit that Ray Charles embodied while trying to explain Ray's reaction to another dark day in American history, September 11th, 2001. Here you go. America, the beautiful, have been beat up. September 11th, 2001 was unlike anything Ray Charles and the rest of the country had ever seen. It shook the country to its foundation. Ray had seen rallying presidential speeches before. He'd even met his fair share of presidents. He'd performed at Richard Nixon's White House, played at Ronald Reagan's inaugural and at the 1984 Republican National Convention, and then at Bill Clinton's inaugural too. He liked them all, despite their flaws. They were politicians after all. And regardless of which party they were in or what they promised, Ray Charles knew that if he wanted something in this world, relying on a politician wasn't going to get him anywhere. He needed to rely on himself. But this speech, 
from George W. Bush was different. There he was, President of the United States, standing in the rubble of the Twin Towers, his arm around a fireman, speaking through a bullhorn to assembled first responders, cops, more firemen, EMTs, construction workers, all there doing the unthinkable work of digging American bodies out from the pulverized remains of cement, glass, plaster, office equipment, and everything else that was once the World Trade Center. There was no teleprompter. There was clearly no prepared, pre-written speech. There was just emotion. The best kind. Uncalculated. Real. Visceral. Somebody at the back of the gathered crowd yelled to the president, We can't hear you! George W. Bush improvises. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. He believed in what he was saying. And on that day, just three days from the worst attack on American soil since Pearl Harbor in 1941, the rest of the country believed it too. It was one of those rare moments of consensus in America. It wouldn't last. Within weeks, America would begin siphoning itself off into familiar tribes, never wanting to let a good crisis go to waste. Republicans would eventually use the situation to grandly and disingenuously reorganize their United States' imperialist ambitions in the Middle East. And Democrats would use the situation to consolidate obstruction for Bush's entire agenda. Both sides succeeded to varying degrees, and both sides also failed fantastically. You know, like they always do. But on that day, with the president down there with the people, down in the rubble, bullhorn in his hand, shouting from the heart like an impassioned Southern preacher, Ray Charles saw hope. And he also saw himself as someone who could remind America of its beauty. By 2001, Ray Charles was somewhat of an American institution. After kicking dope, he had rebounded with a number one hit on the R&B charts, the ironically titled Let's Go Get Stoned. But over the decades, in a discography now over 50 records long, his three number one hits and his two gold records barely scratched the surface of his influence on the music industry and pop culture in general. From cola commercials to Blues Brothers cameos to current Hollywood talk of a biopic of his life, Ray Charles had become part of the fabric of Americana. So naturally, when America was hurting, Ray Charles wanted to help rally the country. Like the president, Ray Charles knew about hope. He also knew about grit and resilience. Ray Charles was a symbol of resilience, a symbol of what you can become no matter where you come from, no matter how far down you are. And America at the moment was down. But Ray Charles, the blind kid from the Jim Crow South who'd never seen himself as anything but capable and equal, was about to remind America of its beauty. October 28, 2001, Game 2 of the World Series, a series which was delayed because of the Al-Qaeda attack on the World Trade Center. Arizona, the hometown Diamondbacks were up a game against the vaunted New York Yankees who'd won the previous three World Series titles. The pregame ceremony, packed house, America on edge, America on the brink. Ladies and gentlemen, to honor America with the singing of America the Beautiful, Please welcome the man and his soul, Mr. Ray Charles. America the Beautiful. For a couple minutes there in 2001, the genius of Ray Charles had reimagined the Catherine Lee Bates song into a newfound national anthem. The emotion in the performance is chilling, hair-raising. 
with nearly 50,000 in attendance and 16 million watching at home, all keyed in to the same emotion, hope. White, black, left, right, red, blue, Republican, Democrat, none of it matters. There is a fusion that happens as Ray sings this song, a mass melding of oneness, of optimism, just weeks after a near death blow. In Arizona, it's a phoenix rising, a reminder of our collective resilience, a reminder to never lose sight of not only who we are, but perhaps more important, of who we can become, a reminder from a true visionary, a blind visionary. It's Ray Charles in body, in spirit, in soul, genius. Now, it's been said that Americans are obsessed with dick. Big dicks, little dicks, all kinds of dicks. Uh, as the great American poet Quentin Tarantino once wrote in the pages of Reservoir Dogs, dick, 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 dick. And with that in mind, I give you the horrific circumstance of one of America's greatest bluesmen, Skip James and his dick. The orderlies were doing their best, but the patient kept bucking, screaming in agony. The surgeon had that post-op Manhattan on his mind. It was only natural, and the shit wasn't worth it. But it was necessary. The penis had to go. If it didn't, the cancer it housed would spread and kill the patient. And the patient was 62-year-old Skip James. Barely a year after his debut at Newport and the subsequent fame that followed, Skip James was felled by the anger of a young Delta woman's hex. She warned him. If he left off on some other road without her, she'd fix him so he couldn't fix himself no more. And that's exactly what happened. Soon after Skip's Newport debut, he noticed the growth on the side of his penis. And in early 1965 at DC General Hospital, Skip James, to his great horror, was castrated four miles from the Washington Monument. The Washington Monument was built in 1854 its architecture takes its inspiration from ancient Egypt's monolithic obelisks. Obelisks were large, four-sided, narrow, tapering monuments consisting of a single stone and designed to symbolize strength, power, virility. There is no mistaking the phallic symbolism of the obelisk, and that was no accident. Obelisks, like the ones of ancient Egypt and the one in our nation's capital, were also meant to symbolize freedom. And there is perhaps no greater American tribute to freedom than the Washington Monument. Skip James, a man who sought freedom on his own path his entire life, and who finally found it at the age of 62, lost his freedom under the shadow of that American tribute. And that is a disgrace. So, America, complicated mess at times, America. It's got a lot of hypocrisy, a lot of oppression, contradictions. Most of that, along with its innovation, tradition, grit, passion, and fuck you attitude, all of that can be found in the character of Miles Davis. America's penchant for constant change, for evolution, the resilience, all of that, like I said, all of it is somewhere in the character of Miles Davis. Have a listen. It was 1991, Miles was sick. A stroke, pneumonia, and respiratory failure. He was in bed in the hospital, 
Change was coming now, motherfucker, and not in a good way. Miles accepted it. Turns out change was not only a necessity, it was also inevitable. He lay back, his woman at his side in the bed, fuck those doctors, fuck the way things were done. His girl could stay, he was the one going someplace. He closed his eyes. He could hear the crowd, and they roared. Sugar Ray danced in the ring. Miles sparred with him, friendly but fierce. Ray bounced. In between the ropes came his detractors. One final fight, one after another. First, his father, a big motherfucking swing. The one he kept coiled for Miles' mama. Miles leaned back. He knew how to lean. Did it on stage all the time. Perfected that trumpet player lean. Then he perfected that junkie lean. His old man's haymaker didn't stand a chance. Swung himself out of the ring. In his place, the bird sang out. Then Bird himself. His punches were different. Verbal, big brother abusive type shit. Bird had no control over his mouth, over his appetite. Miles blasted back with his horn. Bird ran rings around his journeyman jive, master that he was, but Miles was strong. Bird was flying south on his way out. Next came the critics, fucking morons, every last one. Miles made quick work of them, danced, jabbed, shucked, jived, toyed with them, and then knocked them the fuck out. Then came the horse, big, strong, a beast, it corralled him. It knocked him down, standing eight count, down but not out. Miles was strong too. He heard Sugar Ray's voice, it propelled him. He overcame, ran that horse out of his ring for good. And then came Captain Cocaine, AKA La Cocoroca, AKA Boom Boom Bumsini, flashy, fast. He tired Miles out in the three endless rounds, but Miles kept pace, reserving a little extra energy for later when he knew the captain would let his guard down. And when he did, Miles would punish him. When he knocked out Captain Cocaine, they carried him out of the ring on a stretcher, Jimmy Doyle style. Sugar Ray cringed, Miles shrugged, fucker had it coming. Then came the cops, one after another. Over the rope, they all wanted a piece. They surrounded Miles, Miles swung this way, then that. He pulled from deep down with every punch. He summoned all that rage, all that pain, all the hate they made him try to swallow and pummeled them, one after another, down, 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 down. Miles Davis saw himself emerge victorious. He exited the auditorium through the wild applause of the crowd. He didn't give a fuck. Applause was cheap, like dancers there, then gone. That cool air hit his sweat-soaked skin. He hopped into his new Lamborghini, the one he ordered special for this final drive, the one with the rag top. He peeled out in that Lambo, up the Pacific Coast Highway, top down, he raised his fist defiantly to the sky and extended his bony middle finger high into the air. Later, motherfuckers. So, Perry Farrell from Jane's Addiction once sang, the gang and the government are no different. And Perry was exactly right. The United States federal government is the biggest, baddest gang in the world, okay? When, uh, you guys remember The Godfather, you know? Hard movie to forget. There's a scene where Michael is confronting his wife, Kay, or ex-wife at the time. I can't remember where they were in their relationship. Uh, and Michael says, my father is no different than any powerful man, any man with power, like a president or a senator. And Kay responds, do you know how naive you sound, Michael? 
Presidents and senators don't have men killed. And Michael says, oh, who's being naive, Kay? Michael is, of course, exactly right. And if you study history and you look at the evolution of the mafia and the evolution of the federal government, you quickly realize undeniable parallels. It's just that the government got theirs first. The tactics were the same, just spun differently. And frankly, they're still the same. This is what I hinted at in our Frank Sinatra episode. Here you go. In the mafia, getting sent for is nerve-wracking. It usually means you're being deployed to whack someone or you yourself are about to get whacked. In politics, getting sent for usually means you're being deployed to kiss someone's ass or you yourself are about to get your ass kissed, which never comes without strings. Which is why when the half-politician, half-gangster, Joseph P. Kennedy, father of Senator and candidate for President of the United States, John F. Kennedy, sent for Frank Sinatra, Frank was doubly concerned. What did the old man want? Frank didn't know. All he knew was that he was an admirer of the son, Jack. Young, articulate, good-looking, and that had a hair and that smile you could see from space. Charisma for days. And like Frank, Catholic. Just think, a non-wasp with a legit shot at the White House in 1960. Frank boarded his jet and took off for the Kennedy compound in Hyannisport, Massachusetts. Frank was in awe of the senator's father. Sinatra's own father worked for JFK's dad back in the day, running rum through the swamps of Jersey during Prohibition. And so here, Frank sat, looking up at the bootlegger turned ambassador from across the desk like a common laborer being put to task by management. There's power, and then there's power. The Kennedys had it. Sinatra wanted it. And what Joe Kennedy wanted was a favor. The message was direct. His son was going to lose the West Virginia primary to Democratic stalwart Hubert Humphrey. And that couldn't happen. Losing West Virginia meant losing the nomination. And the Kennedys weren't in the business of losing. Joe needed Frank to get Frank's mafia pals to roust up enough votes in West Virginia to deliver a win for Jack. Uh, sure, Ambassador. No problem. I'm sure the boys would be happy to help. Frank hightailed it to Miami for a round of golf with Sam Giancana, AKA Momo, AKA the ruthless Chicago mobster who controlled the Midwest and West Virginia. A Sands regular and a friend of Frank's who at the time was renting out space way up his ass to the ambassador's other son, Senator Robert F. Kennedy, who'd been making it his business to crack down on organized crime. So Giancana saw the obvious play, help Jack the haircut win West Virginia, and evict Bobby the pit bull from out his butt. And with that, it was done. Sort of. The election was a nail-biter. Jack had secured the nomination, but the Republican nominee, Richard M. Nixon, was a formidable candidate and almost as dirty as the Kennedys. Almost. It all came down to Illinois, Giancana's home state, rich with electoral votes and rife with corruption. It was easy. In the end, a couple thousand dead Democrats managed to crawl out of the Illinois cemeteries and into voting booths to cast their votes for Jack. The Kennedys were going to the White House, and Sinatra helped put them there. What couldn't Frank do? Johnny Roselli couldn't believe his life. Never a dull moment. For a mid-level hood like Roselli, the action was nonstop. The girls, the gambling, the graft. It got to be ordinary, but this, this was very much extraordinary. 
Roselli was seated across from two CIA spooks who were offering him and the syndicate, the American Mafia, cold hard cash to whack out Fidel Castro. Mahuda thunk. The United States government wanted Castro gone just as badly as the mob did. So here it was, taking out a contract on the beard. Uncle Sam, no joke. Gangster as fuck. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Disgraceland is sponsored by BetterHelp. So guys, there are these moments in life, we've all had them, where we just feel stuck. Uh, You might be faced with some tough choices, and you're not sure how to navigate through them. Maybe you obsess about the outcome of each of these choices. It doesn't matter. The point is, sometimes the path forward just is not clear. Now, I've certainly felt like this, whether it was doing something like starting this podcast, or moving my family to another city, or even just how to do something simple like how to best organize my day so that I'm being as healthy and productive as possible. Decisions, even small ones, can be tough to navigate, especially in this world, this modern world we're living in where information is flying at us from all directions all the time. But therapy can help you navigate through these tough decisions. You won't have to second guess yourself or feel out of control. Talking with a therapist can help you make choices that align with your values and your goals. And you might be thinking that therapy is just for people who've gone through some like horribly traumatic event. And sure, it helps. I've gone through trauma and I've been open with you guys about it and I've used therapy to get me through it. But therapy can also help with your everyday life by teaching you positive coping skills for when you're feeling anxious or stressed out. Talking, it's just like one more tool that you can use in your kit to become the best version of yourself. And that's what we're all trying to do. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, try BetterHelp. It's 100% online, designed to be convenient, to be flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a quick questionnaire online. You get matched with a licensed therapist, a therapist that's right for you. Plus, you can switch therapists anytime you want for no additional charge. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash disgraceland today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash disgraceland. Hey, Discos, it's Jake here. Thank you so much for listening to Disgraceland. Your support truly means a lot to me, and it's because of you that my team and I are able to make this show. If you want more Disgraceland, if you want more regular interactions with me and the community of Disgraceland listeners, or if you simply want to listen to the show ad-free, go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership, or just click on the link in the show notes for this episode. For just five bucks a month, you can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. You'll also get weekly unscripted bonus content, special audio collections, and early access to merch and events. There are two ways that you can support the show and become a member at disgracelandpod.com slash membership. You can sign up using Patreon and listen to the show ad-free on Apple, Spotify, and most other major podcast platforms. And Patreon members also get access to all the other perks of membership and an always-on chat where I'll be interacting with you and diving deeper into the world of Disgraceland. But maybe you're currently an Apple Podcast subscription listener and you want to just tap into all the bonus audio content and ad-free listening that we're offering. We're also offering this membership as a premium channel on Apple Podcasts. 
However you choose to join, all you got to do is go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Support the show for just $5 a month, five bucks, or sign up for an annual plan and get two months free. Come join me and your fellow discos at Disgraceland All Access by visiting disgracelandpod.com slash membership. All right. When I first got into country music, Americana music, uh, what attracted me to it was the true crime nature of the storytelling. These bad, bad men from an era long, long ago, from a time in American history that was excessively lawless and more violent than anything Hollywood could capture on film. The music that Alan Lomax and Harry Smith researched, documented, and archived it was a treasure trove of, of stuff that inspired me in my early 20s. Uh, when it came time to dig into the story of the Grateful Dead's Ron Pigpen McKernan, and I started to learn about Pigpen, learn what he was into when he was starting, when he first got to know Jerry, Jerry Garcia, and what they were listening to. When I when I heard about all those influences, which of course I knew I knew somewhat from listening to the Grateful Dead. And again, I'm not pretending to be the biggest Grateful Dead fan in the world. You know, if you listen to my podcast, I have a complicated relationship with that band more positive than negative these days and will grow more positive throughout the rest of my life. But the point is, I knew you can't listen to any dead uh, and not know the influence of Americana on that band, folk music, bluegrass, the whole thing. But at the heart of that music is this concept of the bad, bad man. Okay. And I knew I could use Pigpen's story and the influence that he and his band took from that early Americana music, traditional music of the American Batman, I knew that I could use the Pigpen story to explore that whole thing, okay? Old, weird Americana. Here's what I mean. Check it out. Prior to the formation of the Warlocks, Jerry Garcia, Bob Weir, and a long list of others put in time with Jerry's jug band, Mother McCree's Uptown Jug Champions. Jug band music was traditional black party music, a genre that dated back to the early 1900s. Its originators, the Memphis Jug Band, Gus Cannon's Jug Stompers, and the Dixieland Jug Blowers, traditionally featured an array of acoustic and makeshift instruments, washtub bass, juice harp, harmonica, washboards, stovetops, acoustic guitar, piano, and of course, the jug. Stoneware or glass and blown into by its player to create a deep, wild buzzing sound. Jug bands were hopped up, energetic, intended to drive the party. Jug band music directly influenced the English skiffle groups of the 1950s and went on to influence the Beatles. And of course, jug band influence can be heard in the American blues, bluegrass, and folk that ran from Ma Rainey to Bill Monroe to Woody Guthrie to Bob Dylan. And it could now, in 1965, be heard in the music of the Warlocks as well. Their set that night was modern by bluegrass and jug band music standards. They played Dylan's It's All Over Now, Baby Blue, Rufus Thomas's Walking the Dog, and Slynn Harpo's I'm a King Bee, among others. But it was all part of the same tradition. A tradition that Jerry Garcia, Bob Weir, and their early bandmates were now a part of. The tradition of old weird America. Dylan, Rufus, Slim, their songs were part of the deeper lineage a history of music that linked all the way back to traditional slave chants and field haulers, music that after the Civil War evolved into traditional ballads and breakdowns about bad, bad men. Stagger Lee, the loner, the pimp, the end of Billy Lyons. Railroad Bill, feared by brakemen everywhere, train robber extraordinaire. 
Tom Devil creeping up into unsuspecting girls' beds under the cover of night, and Willie Brennan, the highway robber, bold, gay, of English descent from out on the moor. These men were legends, folk heroes, desperate to survive their own demons in an America that didn't want them, an America that shut them out because of the color of their skin, the class they were born out of, and their refusal and or inability to conform to the standards of civilized society. Their legends were born of murder, robbery, bootlegging, and other violent acts of rebelliousness. The mythology of these men detailed half a century's worth of rough and rowdy ways in song. Their casualties, among them and their like, little Sadie who caught a bullet from a 44 smokeless, Viola Lee whose fate inspired violence worthy of a life sentence, and the Knoxville girl, the victim of an unexpected dull thwack from a blunt stick to the skull by her psychotic lover, who then drug her by her golden curls down to the riverside and proceeded to beat her to death. Outlaws, scoundrels, men who were in league with the devil. It is perhaps this storyteller's good fortune that those three qualifiers all make up the old English origin of the word warlock. But it is merely the humorous coincidence of cosmic Americana. Minus the Tolkien magic, warlocks are bad men, just the same as outlaws, scoundrels, rounders, and ramblers. They are all part of the same musical alchemy that runs from Tommy Johnson to Led Zeppelin to Jeffrey Lee to Slayer to Jack White. What's the actual difference? They are threaded by the same spirit, the sorcerer's alchemy, their musical alchemy, the pharmaceutical alchemy, white lightning, reefer, the opium gong, junkheads, moochers, sniffers, and hoochie coochers, the men with the jive. Preacher drank some ginger, said it was because of the flu, and that old man's been lying, he's got the Jake leg too. Tell it to me, tell it to me, drink corn liquor, let the cocaine be. Cocaine is gonna kill my honey dead. Drugs, liquor, magic, murder, killers, thieves, loose women, and other sordid characters. Old, weird America. This was the tradition of the warlocks. This was the tradition of the music they played that night at Magoo's. Weird. Okay, so someone killed America's 35th president, John F. Kennedy, and it wasn't John Denver, even though I said so as a joke in one of our April Fool's episodes. Did I get you? I did, didn't I? Regardless, like I said, someone murdered our American president and it wasn't John Denver, but I'm pretty sure Howard E. Hunt had something to do with it. Here's what I'm saying. Dutch and Irma's Fort Worth, Texas home. It read post-war, suburban military, modest. Ranch house, maybe a thousand square feet, pair of Chevys in the driveway, American flag in the front yard, white picket fence and well-manicured hedges. Regulation height, of course. Milk, cookies, a 19-inch Magnavox to watch the Lawrence Welk show on. Right now, though, the Magnavox was showing Jack the haircut, eating Dick Nixon's lunch on the televised debate stage. The kid said nothing. Sat on the sofa, knees locked, hands clasped, staring not at the television but at the acoustic guitar leaning up against the wall aside it. His old man cursed the Catholics, he cursed the commies, he cursed the, the Jews, the pinkos, and the pencil necks. No group was safe. Hunt sipped his milk and tried to suppress a smile. The old man would play ball all right. This was going to be easier than he thought. Hunt swapped the natural waspy eloquence in his voice for near-blue barracks bravado. You see, your son has a gift, sir. I've never seen anyone shoot like that. And like you, I did my time for uncle, Navy man, then the Air Corps. Like you, a wingman, then, unlike you, the OSS. 
I've seen men shoot, is what I'm saying. And maybe in the Air Force, you don't get to see as many men work their way around a rifle, but your son, he ain't like anything anyone has ever seen anywhere, at least when it comes to firing a gun. The old man was listening. In the background, Kennedy's good looks, his toothy smile, that fucking East Coast entitlement, all of it stoked a raging inferno of insecurity in the old man. It was thick, palpable. To the kid, it was genetic. He was fucked. You see? Hunt nodded to the television. Now, right now, more than ever, now, we need boys like your son, sir. Capable boys. The world ain't what it was when we were his age. Times are changing, and we need all the help we can get, keeping things the way they should be, keeping the country pure, keeping our ideals in place. There are enemies among us, sir. Some of them even have designs on the White House right there. And there are conflicts springing up all over the place. Cuba, French Indonesia, that commie genie that FDR let out of the bottle, it ain't going back in. No sirree, Bobcat. Not without a concerted effort from men like me, like you, and like your son. The old man was wrapped. Hunt went in for the clothes. His gift, his ability, it deserves special attention, special cultivation. We have an elite sniper school affiliated with the agency that is ACES, and we think your son would be well utilized there, and he'd be making his country proud. Nixon sweated on the screen with indecision. The old man did not share Nixon's inability to make up his mind. His decision was easy. Get me the papers. I'll sign them. The boy will report for duty Monday morning at 0500 hours. Okay, so I know that art imitating life isn't an exclusively American concept, but in the story of TK-47, it sure as hell seemed like an exclusively American proposition, at least during the time that it was set. You have a listen, and you tell me what you think. You are now about to witness the strength of street knowledge. Is the line at the beginning of NWA's Straight Outta Compton. We all know the iconic song and album by now. It's music so powerful that it has permanently singed itself upon America's cultural identity. You can't describe the history of hip-hop without giving Straight Outta Compton its due. And you can't give an honest depiction of the history of Los Angeles without mentioning the album either. Straight Outta Compton accurately forecast one of America's blackest eyes. The Rodney King beating by the systematically racist LAPD and subsequent LA riots in 1992. And the album wasn't some obscure, preachy, pedantic musical statement about socioeconomic conditions and the plight of black America and Los Angeles at the time. It was a visceral depiction of life on Compton streets, and it was a stone-cold hit. It sold over three million albums, a total banger of a record, start to finish, not a bad song on it. And it sounded different from any other hip-hop at the time. It was hard, and the vocalists, there were four frontmen, each voice nearly as powerful as the next. Sure, MC Ren was more of a player coach and Yellow filled the Ringo slot, but Easy e Ice Cube, and Dr. Dre on Straight Outta Compton were hip hop's answer to John, Paul, and George. Except this wasn't Can't Buy Me Love. This was Life Ain't Nothing But Bitches and Money. Ice Cube's lyrics brought the reality of growing up in South Central Los Angeles to suburban white American youth with authority. I know, because I was a suburban white American youth in 1989, 
the year that NWA straight out of Compton made it to my little corner of middle America. And when it did, I was hooked. I wore that cassette out, memorized every lyric, every skit, every beat. I was fascinated. The stories were gripping. The big thing with my friends and I was, was this shit real or were these guys making it all up? Were cops really beating on dudes just for being black? Were rappers really living a gang life, slinging dope and committing drive-by shootings in between playing shows and making records? I was in camp real. How could anyone make this up? It was too wild. The truth, of course, was somewhere in the middle. Easy e had OG street cred with the Crips, but I'm pretty sure Ice Cube went to bed at night wearing matching pajamas. It didn't matter. Their music was inspired and gangster as fuck. It was my first experience with art imitating life. Art that I appreciated anyways. And so when Rodney King and the LA riots happened, it was just life imitating art. Like most of America, I was shocked as I watched the riots from the safety of my suburban couch. But unlike most of America, I can't say I was surprised. We knew this was gonna happen because NWA warned us. And when OJ got off, same, shocked, but not surprised. Unless you live in South Central or Long Beach or are a cop or a social worker or first responder or someone else working in the area, this is likely where the story of LA gang culture ends for you, culturally speaking anyways. But of course, that's not true. Gang life in South Central and Long Beach continues to be pretty much just as dangerous as it was when NWA burst on the scene. Statistics are hard to come by, what with LAPD underreporting violent crimes, but according to a report conducted by the LA County Board of Public Health, the year straight out of Compton was released, 1989, there were 554 gang homicides in LA County. In the year 2000, there were 448. A vast majority of these deaths can be attributed to the perpetually feuding gangs, the Bloods, and the Crips. The Crips, the LA gang NWA's Eazy-E and MC Ren associated with, boasts a worldwide membership of 35,000 gang members comprised of a network of countless individual gangs. The Nutty Block Crips, Lantana Block Crips, Long Beach Insane Crips, South Side Crips, West Side Crips, Cabbage Patch Crips, and on and on and on. In the year 2000, a Nutty Block Compton Crip in a Long Beach Insane Crip gave birth to Tamor McIntyre. Born into one of America's most dangerous street gangs, no one knew it at the time, but 17 years later, just like those other products of Compton Street's NWA, this boy's art would so authentically imitate his life that it would land him on the billboard charts and make him one of America's most wanted fugitives in the process. All these stories, TK47, Ron Pigpen McKernan, Frank Sinatra, Skip James, Ray Charles, all these stories tell part of the American story, just a very small part. The diversity of these stories, the characters within the gangsters, thieves, charlatans, CIA assassins, bluesmen, jazzmen, junkies, 
All of it speaks to the weirdness and endlessly entertaining America that I know, love, and have coursing through my veins. Happy 4th of July, everybody. We'll be back with part two of our America Fuck Yeah celebration in a couple days. Fill your propane tanks or stock up on your briquettes. Be careful with your fireworks. Cue up your CCR and have a safe and relaxing holiday. Rock a roll.